standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 139 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and in the seemingly inexorable transformation into my mother, I've started saying the word burp when I burp. I don't even know I'm doing it until it's too late. So what, you go burp like that? Yep, that's what happens. Okay. It's classic Anne. Anne also says a tissue when she sneezes. <laughs> Does she say Boo! I've never got that close to my mum's arse, Hannah, but uh, maybe I'll ask for some more information and get back to you. It's a very chipper poo. It'd have to be a very, like, uncomplicated poo, I think, to be that kind of level of chipper. Again, if I get any more information on this, guys, I will let you know. Thanks. More news as it happens. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and last week I went supersonic, almost, sort of. It was very exciting, anyway. Ooh, what does it sound and feel like to go supersonic, Hannah? Well, I didn't literally go supersonic, but a jet directly over my house did, and it caused a sonic boom, which was heard for about a 50-mile radius. That's amazing. What did it sound like? It sounded like something massive had exploded, because I sent you both a WhatsApp message that said, I think something just blew up in Cambridge. I was hoping for a recreation of that noise, Hannah. Um, I I would be unable to do it. It sounded like a building exploding. My mum would just go, kaboom. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It came with a sort of a vibration. I thought something had exploded, then I thought maybe someone had dropped a squid on New York. Wasn't that either. There's a watchman joke for you that you don't get. Um, it was it was just a plane going supersonic, but it was very loud, and it caused quite the stir. Everyone going, literally, what the fuck was that? What just blew up in Cambridge? Um, and the answer was nothing. That's the kind of drama you need in lockdown. Yeah, yeah. Did something explode? No. Okay, great. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and last week I bought an electric flosser, so don't tell me lockdown is tedious. Wow. Do you know the worst thing about that was, is that I sometimes struggle a bit to do these these facts to start to open the podcast with, because uh, I'm not really doing anything that interesting, and I don't want to constantly talk about my child to people who aren't that interested. This week, uh, when I got my, my electric flosser, I thought... That's the fact. I was like, I immediately knew that was going to be my fact for the week. And I actually think that is worse than it being my fact for the week. Electric flosser sounds like a euphemism for a sex toy. Well, Hannah, it's not. What it is, is it's basically like a power hose for your teeth. It's quite exciting. I think you could probably use that as a sex toy. You probably could. I I don't know. There's a lot of power on that jet. I I, I actually don't think you would want to. Too much power. On that More jet. news as it happens. <laughs> Check Jim with the sexy talk. There's a lot of power on that jet. <laughs> well, this explains why she's the one out of the three of us who got pregnant. So I'm starting to wonder whether it was a jet that caused the sonic boom or whether it was Jen with her electric flosser. <laughs> Later on, I catch up with political commentator and activist Dr. Shola Moshog Bamimu to talk about dismantling structural racism, the big problem of performative allyship, and handing Piers Morgan his arse on a plate. And you can listen to my full interview with Shola as this week's Sunday Chops. I talked to writer and podcast host Selena Flavius about why it's always a good time to get hold of your finances and her new book, Black Girl Finance. In Jenny Off the Blocks, we're bidding a fond-ish farewell to Phil Neville. And we attend yet another American high school, mostly populated by people in their 20s, some of them in full linen suits. (laughs) As in Rated or Dated, we watch 1986's Pretty in Pink. But first, writing wrongs and doing flaws? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush! 
Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. The gentlewoman from Newport Pagnell yields her time. The gentlewoman from Harwich is recognised. Hello. It's hard to forget the 2017 Grenfell Tower disaster in which 72 people died when the block of flats caught fire. This was seemingly, at least in part, because of the combustible cladding used on the building. I say seemingly because the inquiry into the disaster is ongoing. I mean, I say it's hard to forget, though I'm not entirely sure our government has remembered. For a start, that inquiry has been paused due to COVID for more than a month now and doesn't look set to begin again until February. Still, what's two months when you've already waited three and a half years for any kind of justice for the tragic and completely preventable loss of a home or, worse still, a loved one? What more do people want, eh? I know. But what about all the other people indirectly impacted by the disaster and directly impacted by the widespread use of unsafe ACM cladding by developers? Well, residents in affected properties may be eligible to apply for the government's £1.6 billion remediation fund, provided the building meets specific height and defect criteria. But they will have to stay quiet about it, according to extracts of the funding agreement which were uncovered last week, stating that applicants shall not make any communication to the press or any journalist or broadcaster regarding the project or the agreement. Well, that all seems above board, eh? I know. It really fills fills me with confidence in the way it's going to be run. And if you don't meet the requirements or want to effectively sign a gagging order, well, you could pay an increased insurance premium of up to 1,200% according to well-known Voice of the People and campaigner of human rights, Jeremy um, Clarkson. (laughs) Exactly. I'm confused. Yeah, I know. So Clarkson last week wrote about his own insurance woes after premiums for the building in which he has a flat rose from £8,000 per year to £60,000. Wowzers. Despite the fact that the cladding on the building isn't even flammable. In a column for The Times, Clarkson accused insurance companies from profiteering and while calling on the government to step in, he acknowledged that while he can afford to pay this, thousands of people affected by these gigantic insurance premiums cannot. So, good luck, Jeremy Clarkson. Which I, can't, I can't believe that I'm saying this. Do you feel dirty saying I'd, that, I feel yeah. wrong. This government doesn't even want to feed children and unfortunately, I absolutely can believe that I'm saying that. Yeah, sadly. So it's Wednesday. It's not, Jen. It's Monday. But for the purposes of the tape. Thank you. Just in case you suddenly went, oh, shit, I'm supposed to be somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Which means if everything goes to plan, Joe Biden will be inaugurated as US president today. And not that that's not important, but it will get blanket coverage. So I thought this week I'd talk about something else very important that hasn't got much coverage outside of its own borders. The report into mother and baby homes published last week in Mm. Ireland. A judicial commission of investigation published the almost 3,000-page report into the network of mother and baby homes, which were found all over the country for much of the 20th century. It follows a five-year investigation into the religious institutions for unmarried mothers and their children, which also functioned as orphanages and adoption agencies, and examined 1.5 million documents over that period. Fucking hell. About 56,000 women and 57,000 children were placed or born into the homes from 1922 until the last one shut in 1998. And even though Mickey and I actually visited the ruins of the last Magdalene laundry to close, the fact that institutions like that were still operating when I was an adult stops me in my tracks every time. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, 1998. Oh, God. 
Conditions in the homes were often brutal and mortality rates were high. 9,000 children died in Ireland's mother and baby homes between 1922 and 1998, which is around 15% of children, twice the national average for those born to unmarried mothers in that period that weren't in homes, obviously. At one home, three quarters of all the children born or admitted there during 1943 died. Children in mother and baby homes were also used as guinea pigs in vaccine trials without correct consent, which flouted ethical and regulatory guidelines. Seven trials took place between 1934 and 1973, including ones for a measles vaccine and a four-in-one quadrivax, which was diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, I'm not sure what that is, and polio. According to the Commission... The trials all involved either the Wellcome Foundation or Glaxo Laboratories, which are both now part of GlaxoSmithKline. So does that mean that they were their trials? How did they get the consent to... Well, they didn't get the consent from the actual women. Was that, like, basically sold to them by the government or something? I don't know. I think what happened was the idea that you had a captive audience, which was actually quite a good thing, not a captive audience, you had a captive Mm. bunch of people meant that it was easy to track what happened. So they would trial them, and it wasn't a case of those people might wander off and not come back. So the the children were vaccinated mm. without the mother's permission for the children to be vaccinated oh. because the children were considered to be, presumably at this date, wards of Ireland. Wow. Yeah. Sorry. No, wow is the word. The Irish state and Ireland's Catholic Church both made, and here's that word again, unprecedented apologies for their roles in the mother and baby home scandal. Taoiseach Michael Martin said that the report described a dark, difficult and shameful chapter of recent Irish history in which an extraordinarily oppressive culture treated women exceptionally badly. He said that the report presented, quote, all of Irish society with profound questions and added, we did this to ourselves, all of society was complicit in it. Eamon Martin, Ireland's most senior church figure, said, quote, I accept that the church was clearly part of that culture in which people were frequently stigmatised, judged and rejected. For that, and for the long-lasting hurt and emotional stress that has resulted, I unreservedly apologise. It's nigh on impossible for me to do any justice to this story in such a small space of time, let alone get on to the reaction of survivors or what elements of this scandal still remain to be looked at. But I can say two things. Number one, the Irish Times has extensive expert and exemplary coverage of all aspects of this report and what still needs to happen to right the wrongs of the past on its website. And you should absolutely visit it to find out more. Number two, the survivors, both mothers and the babies born into these homes and their supporters deserve all the praise in the world for making this report happen and for continuing, as we know they will, to fight to see the documents pertaining to their own cases, which might still reunite families that were forcibly separated by a brutal and unjust system. Official apologies can never right the wrongs done to them, but I hope it goes some way to bringing them some peace. That's amazing, because... What did you say, 1999 or 1998? 1998. there would be children who are 16 years younger than me and born in those homes. That's mind-blowing. It really is. Yeah. Anyway, do you want a bit of good news, Jim? Yes, please. Last week, Cambridge University announced a new scheme to help a more diverse range of students to attend. 
According to the university, Cambridge Foundation Year is, quote, aimed at an entirely new stream of applicants who have the ability to succeed at Cambridge but have been prevented from reaching their full potential by their circumstances and will prepare students for further learning and offer them the chance to progress straight to an undergraduate degree at Cambridge. Now, this will include students who have been in care, are estranged from their families, come from low-income households, or who have missed parts of their education due to ill health. The foundation year will be entirely free, thanks to a £5 million donation by philanthropists, that's a hard word, Christina and Peter Dawson, and will fund up to 50 students to begin study in October 2022. On successful completion of the programme, they will receive a Certificate of Higher Education from the University of Cambridge, and if they make the grade, can progress to degrees in the arts, humanities and social sciences at Cambridge without the need to apply to the university again. Students will also be supported during the programme to find alternative university places if they do not wish to continue to undergraduate studies at Cambridge or do not meet the required level of attainment. If you want to know more or you know a kid you think might benefit from this scheme, you can find out more at cam.ac.uk forward slash foundation year. Well, that is very good news. Does that mean, does that apply to um, kids all across the country? Yeah, they're trying to get people from places or schools that have never sent someone to Cambridge. But yeah, I mean, if you think that some kids aren't lucky enough I think we all think our parents aren't supportive but some kids aren't lucky enough to even have contact with their parents Mm. and yeah it's got to be good news for them absolutely yeah more news next week well you have equal pay but you know they're not equal are they sexism of the week now Hannah how would you describe Phil Spector music producer (laughs) I mean a big haired big haired (laughs) wanker music producer (laughs) Music pioneer, addict, all of the above. Well, to be fair, he was all of the above. But if I had to describe Spectre, who died earlier this week at the age of 81, I know I'm probably not going to lead with what a troubled little soldier he was. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah's making the universal face for, I don't know, urchin, troubled urchin or something like that. <laughs> In a case of another day, another silly sausage did a bad. The convicted murderer of actress Lana Clarkson, who was shot and killed in 2003, was described by the BBC as talented but flawed upon announcement of his death. That's a fairly significant flaw, if you ask me. What do you think? Jesus Christ. Especially given that at the time of his death, he was in prison for Clarkson's murder. So... Spectre was not a victim. Lana Clarkson absolutely was. And that really is an open and shut case. We've talked about this before. In fact, lots of people have talked about this now. And yet still we find ourselves banging the drum. The normalisation of violence against women by the media is dangerous. And violence which has risen exponentially in the last year under lockdowns around the world. And it has to stop. Are we banging the drum, Jen, or are we smashing our faces into our desks? <laughs> into our desks, into our screaming pillows, into the sky, yeah. 
Hey there, listener. If you've often found yourself wondering what else we're getting up to besides interviewing top women for your listening pleasure, you are in luck. We've revamped our newsletter, now known as the Bush Telegram, see what we did there, which we'll be taking it in turns to write. So now you can read all about what books Mick's had a nose in, what Hannah's been watching, and what food substance I've been picking out of my daughter's ear. To subscribe, go to standardissuepodcast.com, and if you scroll to the bottom of the page, you will find a little box to whack your email in. And to be honest, no one would give me a Noel Edmonds watch column. So this has worked out rather well. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined by Selena Flavius, host of the Black Girl Finance podcast and now author of Black Girl Finance, the book, which is out this week, 21st of January in all good bookshops. Thank you for joining us, Selena. Hi, Hannah. Thanks for having me. (laughs) January is the time for us to be thinking about money, but... Loads of people don't like thinking about money, don't like talking about money for a lot of reasons, which we'll get into. But I thought the best place for me to start is if you could tell us how you became a woman who was hosting a podcast and writing a book called Black Girl Finance. Oh, my gosh. It's it's very weird. It's still quite surreal for me, actually, that the book's coming out this week. But essentially, it was a... A kind of like a platform I wish I had access to when I was younger and first going out into the working world. Coming from a Black Caribbean background, we don't often talk about money or money issues. We don't talk openly about money and money issues. So I spent the beginning years of my working career really struggling with, with money, just doing like basic money things. So I was always taught or told to save and save for a rainy day. But literally, I had no idea of the best way of doing it. The other thing was, you know, having clear strategies on things such as budgeting, investing, you know, getting on the property ladder, speaking to, you know, financial institutions that could be speaking to a mortgage advisor or mortgage broker or going to seek the advice of a, a financial advisor as well. Just didn't know how to navigate the, the financial system. It seemed very intimidating. So there was lots of anxiety. And also, you know, when I eventually realized that I was in a bit of a financial rut. And I I explained this in the book, I spoke to nobody about it, just because of the, I guess, the tradition of just not really speaking about money and finances within the household. I was in a single parent household with a mum who was just an absolute rock star. She literally worked so hard. She came over here from the Caribbean and she had to kind of find her way. So her relationship with her mum wasn't that great. She ended up getting kicked out at quite a young age, came over as a teenager and had to kind of fend for herself. So I grew up seeing someone who was just getting on with it, working really hard, taking care of all the kids and just kind of juggling a lot of balls, but without much conversation about it. So for example, I remember her getting on the property ladder. She she had a council property and, and she did the right to buy scheme. So she accessed that scheme, essentially, and she managed to get on the property ladder. And, and when she did, it was without any fanfare. We didn't of celebrate the fact that well actually I'm now a property owner she just kind of got on with it and you know come to speak to her now in later years she has mentioned the fact that you know the reason why she actually sold up and moved was because so it was a council property within a flock of flat for the the property owners you have the, the leasehold yeah. payment so any kind of thing that they do on there they divide up the costs by all of the um, property owners yeah. so that that cost was getting too much which is why she decided to sell up and and buy a house instead and it's only recently that we've had those conversations and she's actually said well actually it was becoming too much but at the time it was just like okay well 
we're, we're kind of moving now. She's long story short, it was just a lack of conversation. Yeah, <laughs> around, well, around finances. <laughs> well, you said a lot of stuff there that's really interesting because obviously, <laughs> culturally, people will bring their own thing to money. Yes. we can't help but pick up our parents' attitudes to money but also other people around us. And one of the things I found interesting that you wrote in your book is you talk about how religion yes. intersects <laughs> with money. And I had never, ever, ever considered that before. I grew up a Catholic. I'm not Catholic anymore. Yeah, same. Um, but it never <laughs> occurred to me that the way money gets talked about in religion possibly formulated how I felt about money. And one of the things that you said then when you got into trouble financially you didn't want to share it because there is kind of this shame or this embarrassment or this idea that you might become a burden to somebody else that that I thought was really clear so I yeah I thought that was really interesting when I read that I mean there's research that shows that money habits start at age around age seven or kind of money thoughts and kind of consciousness around money starts at a very young age and we are influenced by everything that's going on so like you mentioned culturally definitely you know there are some things that we see within particular kind of cultures and backgrounds an example in the Caribbean background we have the partner scheme and there's also different names for it in African backgrounds and I think even in Chinese culture and you know those informal saving habits so it's it is really interesting and also another example could be the tradition in certain kind of cultures or households where money um, or assets are always put in the male name yeah that still happens and that exists and and these are things that culturally we may just internalize and, and think are oh, you know it's just what's done it's just how things are for me Catholicism you know I, I was baptized and I was yeah. I did my first holy communion yeah. and you know got some lovely pictures dressed up in my white dress <laughs> um, for me, it's just that big thing of, um, you know, like I say in the book, you know, Mother Teresa took about poverty and desiring money and, and saying out loud, you know, look, I want to be rich. I want to, mm. you know, I want I want to earn a lot of money. It's, particularly as women, I think it's more acceptable for men yeah. to kind of just boast and brag about finances and money and, and riches. You know, we don't cut an eyelid, but when a, maybe when a female does it, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of frowned upon. Yeah. Okay, let's, think... let's get to that because you grew up with just your mum. So obviously your mum headed your household. I grew up yeah. in a family where my dad was terrible with money. So my mum yeah, did okay. all the budgeting. And actually, I would say that spread out throughout my wider family. The women in my family knew what something cost. And knew yes. where you found the best value, this thing. The men just yeah. basically just bought the thing they liked and then worried about the repercussions afterwards. Yeah, I, I think there is that kind of balance as yeah. well. In, 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 it can be in relationships as well, yeah. whereby this this idea that women are making kind of 80 percent of the household decisions. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do think that there is a difference perhaps in are they making decisions about families are they are we making decisions about the wider family like assets you know mm. what mortgages we we are buying or what kind of insurance policies are we are we having or is it just we're allowed to make decisions around you know what what the family are eating this week or yeah, what, what machine to buy or what school uniform is needed and then do we defer the kind of I guess the larger wealth building yeah. decisions to to our other halves and partners I'm not saying we do we don't but I do I I, I think it's interesting because you know yes it's it, we do need um I guess businesses who are creating products and services to to take account women and, and women's needs but at the same time 
is it extending beyond just kind of like the day-to-day yeah. management of the, of the family um I think that needs to be analyzed when we do say that yeah, headline of, that that is really them. interesting if we sort of extrapolate further from that and we're saying that yes. you know women run most household budgets in this country I don't know if that's true or not but I'm going to say it because yeah. I would say yeah. that the amount of single household single parent households headed by a woman must tip the the scales mm-hmm. in, in women's favor in that but yet they don't run the majority of big businesses and they don't have the majority of jobs in finance so I wondered what you thought it was and from what you've learned over writing this book and doing your podcast what you think is either preventing women from going into it or stopping women wanting to go into it yeah and um, it's quite interesting I was doing some work I was part of something called like a challenge group member for the money and pensions advice service and they have a um, like a 10-year financial wellness strategy that they're working on they've been tasked by the government to to, to do that basically I was part of a, a group of people so women men from banks from organizations so like voluntary organizations that deal with money finance debt all of that kind of thing all coming together and talking about these things and um, I think one of the things that that came up was the fact that there is a, a penalty in terms of our gender pay gap. Younger women, there seems to be parity in terms of, of the pay. But as soon as women enter motherhood, there then, then mm. tends to be that penalty. And it could be that, you know, we, we may be more responsible for, for childcare. So we may be more likely to yeah. work part time. And one of the biggest things that we were having in terms of those conversations was the fact that making it equal, making it okay for men to perhaps shoulder more of the the responsibility yeah. for the childcare. I did a podcast episode recently when um, the founder of one of the biggest clothing brands in Europe, he stepped aside. He was a founder. He stepped aside. They made a decision as a couple to prioritise his wife's career. It did make news and I did talk about it on the podcast because it's very unique to really? hear about a man doing. And um, I think he had a guest, guest on last week and she was saying that, you know, um, her, her partner... Yes. Yeah, does does and I shouldn't say. Oh, that makes him a really great guy. But yeah, yeah. but yeah, yeah we're taking care of his family. Yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> and it, I guess it is that it does extend to the notion that when a man is kind of taking care of his kids, he's almost like babysitting yeah. them. That type of thinking that we we kind of have about the 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 roles and the responsibilities within families. Yeah, like I say, we were talking about within the group things such as, you know, making it okay for men to work part time and, you know, take time out to do the school runs and, you know, take care of the kids if they're sick and also paternity leave, you know, making sure that they understand within organizations, understanding yeah. what paternity leave they can get and they should take. And also if a woman is taking time out for maternity leave, making sure that if it's possible for the for a man to be kind of putting in to their pension pot still so they're not missing out on those pensions contributions and mm. um, so it's all those kind of things quite complicated yeah. that have an impact on the gender pay gap I know one woman who works in finance and I can't be any more specific than that because I haven't got a permission to talk about it but I have to say mm. she burned out by 40 and is no longer in okay. it and from looking at that experience I would say doesn't look like a fun, it kind of felt like to me it doesn't look like a fun industry to be in as yeah. in general let alone as I would say yeah. as someone who's trying to also run a family so yeah I think it's it's very much that that kind of culture and having that support for I guess the, the family yeah. in workplaces yeah. so that you know everyone's aware of what 
that's available to them, what can be done to support both careers, you know, the husband and the wife's careers. Obviously, women of colour in finance are going to get caught in that intersection of sexism and racism. Do, do, you, do you have any info for us on how things are for women of colour in the finance industry? There is research that shows that, you know, when it comes to applying for roles, people with... I guess, more black sounding names or more, you know, non-British sounding names had to apply, you know, 80 times more, make 80 times more applications than, you know, people from, I guess, white British British backgrounds or sounding names. So there definitely is that bias as much as we like to think, you know, everyone's equal, it's equal opportunity. Mm. Yes, we can all equally apply. But does that mean that our application is going to be considered, you know, equally as, as... as everybody else so I guess it's an issue with making sure that there's a pipeline of talent yes you know making it attractive to allow people to want to apply in the first place and then when they are applying making sure that they've just got equal opportunity to Mm. to be put forward so whether that means having things such as blind CVs so that you know you're looking at the talent rather than looking at a name or the background or an area because you know you know there's discrimination based on class as well yeah absolutely Um, yeah which yeah. needs to be spoken about. So there's that. So once you've created the pipeline, getting people in, and then once people are in, you know, are there leadership programs to allow people to really progress, whether you're female or women of colour or kind of any other protected groups of, of people? Now, aside from the fact that we both grew up Catholics, the, the, thing yeah. that struck, <laughs> the thing that struck me that you and I have in common is both of us lived for many, many, many years, payday <laughs> to payday which is an absolutely terrible, a terrible way to live, not least because you lose huge amounts of money in like bank charges that mean that you never quite get on top of it. And I was wondering if people are looking at their finances in January, I mean, obviously, a lot of people are going to be in a terrible position with the way things are at the moment. If people are looking at their finances in January, I wondered if you had like any tips of how to try and not live payday to payday or perhaps get out, break that cycle a little bit. Yeah, I think number one is just having a conversation about the cycle that does exist, because I think sometimes we can be in such a bubble, just getting on with things that we don't even notice. And it's not even a a, a thing. Mm. Um, It's not even something that you really pick up on. And and it's the same for me. I spent so long just thinking I was okay because I guess because I I wasn't in any financial difficulty Mm. initially, but slowly, you know, things such as lifestyle creep creeps in. So you, you start earning slightly more and then you start paying out slightly more you know you kind of upgrade the car and upgrade the tv Mm. and the fridge and everything gets a a little bit more fancy (laughs) you know and if you're making those kind of purchases on perhaps credit um Mm. etc those those credit charges are increasing Um, and then finally you you may get to a point whereby you know what you are earning versus how much you're kind of owing becomes too much so it's important to be aware that that's a possibility if you're not cognizant of of kind of how you're spending and what Mm. you are spending so number one just be aware of it number two just do a you know quick budget every so often and just I I would recommend actually not every so often I would recommend doing like a monthly budget and just seeing what's going on just really sit down it doesn't have to be fancy it doesn't have to be as a spreadsheet with formulas yeah. and it can just be pen and paper you know your in your incomings your outgoings and just see and just keep keep an eye on it you know something that you may have purchased or signed up for six months ago may not be something that you really need or something that you, it may be something that you can do without right mm. now so just keep an eye on it and, and and just see what's going on 
and, and make some decisions. Maybe you decide to cut back on something which will give you enough to start paying off extra towards a, a debt or a, a bill to get that paid off quicker. One of the reasons why I didn't like being in that payday to payday cycle once I finally realized it was because it just meant I was just on this constant like hamster wheel <laughs> and, and and I couldn't make any changes. So you know, things I wanted to do, i.e. The, the only reason why I created the Black Golf Finance website and, and podcast and all of that was because I was able to save up some money to be able to study. So I studied a web design, very basic web design course. Yeah. And I've, I've got it in the blurb for the book, but it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, I'm not a techie. I can't build anyone's websites, mm-hmm. but um, it allowed me to, you know, do a bit of an evening course and kind of retrain and, and do something that I was a bit more interested in. So it allowed me to create the platform. And so, so it gave me a bit, bit more freedom, mm-hmm. less anxiety, because I was able to also save up some money for emergencies as well so if something went wrong I could then fund that and I think that's the important thing when it comes to money as well it's just getting rid of the stress and anxiety around it living the life and doing the things that you enjoy as well and rather than just being on that constant kind of hamster wheel of you know I've got this bill so I just have to constantly just just be working 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 to pay bills I think attitude as well sometimes you have to just adjust your head I can remember saving up and actually having some money that I thought that I'd earmarked for a thing that I was going to spend it on, and my boiler went, and I ended up having to spend it on my boiler, and I was livid. I was absolutely livid. But a friend of mine pointed out to me that if I hadn't saved it up, I would have had to go into debt to fix that boiler. And so in many ways, it was a really positive thing. And I was like, oh, I don't know. It's not the holiday I wanted, but I suppose actually changing your perspective on it a bit not being so relentlessly negative, I suppose, maybe, is, is the attitude. Yeah. Trying to look positively at it. I say that Absolutely. as I'm sitting in the cold house next to my lovely warm radiator. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> Does it need fixing again? But no, I, I think you're absolutely right. That That's what happens. And I think COVID, unfortunately, has been a reminder. Usually when we talk about emergency funds, you know, or saving up for emergency funds, it's because of, you know, the boiler breaking down mm. or the car packing up or you know, the fridge packing in, it's not, well, being furloughed or being made redundant and the job being not viable. And I hate that terminology, you know, people who've worked in certain industries for years and years and years, all of a sudden, there's this discussion about whether or not their jobs are are viable Mm -hmm. or unviable when they were jobs that were fantastic yeah you know just over 10 months ago I just it just makes me feel really upset yeah um and yeah COVID has been a reminder of you know at least having that emergency fund um and the fact that you saved up as well just shows that you can save up again and go on that holiday next year as well yeah. so that's positive. yeah that, that is a really good point <laughs> and apparently that is really good for your mental health apparently planning yes. holidays that you even if you never go on them the yes. actual act of planning a holiday is really good for your mental health and also good for your budgeting because you sit and work it out and then you think, yeah. well, hey, maybe if the holidays doesn't happen, I can spend that money on something else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, it's a lot more fun to to it's a lot more fun to save for a holiday, even if then that money eventually gets car. spent on yes. emptying your car. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I absolutely. ask you what's next for you, Selena? So. Just continue working on Black Girl Finance. I think this year, at the moment, it's just an audio podcast. I'm going to do like a video podcast. That's the plan. But I don't like like videoing myself. Yeah, nobody does. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> selfies and videos. You know, I'm not, I don't know. I think kind of, it's not natural for me. So yeah. 
kind of going to be forcing myself out of my comfort zone zone in that respect. Also studying as well. I want to become a, a qualified financial advisor. Um, at the moment, if someone needs to speak to a financial advisor, I kind of pass them on to, to a financial advisor that I know or financial advisors that I know. So doing some studying, some personal kind of self-development for myself. And yeah, just kind of continuing to, to provide the support. I really, really love what I do. I, I enjoy it so much. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the book coming out. I'm nervous, but kind of excited yeah, well, you, at the you same should time. Be. I, I think it's actually, I think it's really valuable. I think money conversations, as someone who, we've got an advert coming up. It's not on the podcast yet, but it might be by the time. So people might hear this twice in one podcast, <laughs> in which we're supposed yeah. to talk about what, what, what financial type we are. And I make a joke in it that that my idea of future planning is hiding £20 notes in the house and then hoping (laughs) that future Hannah finds them and spends them wisely. And actually, I think the more I talk about money, the better, because I think part of my brain just shuts down, just shuts down. Conversations (laughs) like this or conversations like you're having on your podcast that keep that part of my brain open, I think, are really important. Yeah. Where can people find you on the socials? So I'm on Instagram. It's uh, Black Girl Finance UK okay. <laughs> on Instagram. And then there's also Twitter, which is Black Girl Finance as well. There's also the website. It's www.blackgirlfinance.co.uk, which you can will link to the socials, probably easier. And then also, if you want to listen to the podcast again, it's just Black Girl Finance. Search for that on all on social, all good social top media platforms. Fans. Yeah. Okay, yes. great. And the book <laughs> is out on the 21st of January. Yes. Um, I would advise everyone gives it a read and thinks about money. Yes, absolutely. Definitely. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by political commentator, activist, author of new book, This Is Why I Resist, and top class Piers Morgan agitator, Dr. Shola Moss-Shogba-Mimu. Shola, Hello. Hello, hello. I had to laugh at the Pierce Morgan agitator bit. <laughs> that, that is a new one. Well, seriously, first of all, a tip of the hat for handing Piers Morgan his ass on a plate. I mean, getting a word in edgeways is hard enough, but you did an incredible job. Well, you know, Piers, engaging with Piers, you have to be ready to have, you know, the discussion and be able to share your point of view. And, and sometimes he listens and sometimes he doesn't. So, c'est la vie. Do you like that kind of rigorous debate? Is that something that that gets your adrenaline flowing? Let me put it this way. My passion gets my adrenaline going and I don't run away from having, you know, debates in whatever form they may be, especially if I'm passionate about the subject in question. And if what the other person is saying is not making sense, I'm going to tell them what they're saying is not making sense because I don't have time to sugarcoat words. It just life is too short for that nonsense. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to you uh, telling me a bit later on. (laughs) (laughs) Time-wise, your book, This Is Why I Resist, Don't Define My Black Identity, it covers the pandemic, it covers George Floyd's killing by a white police officer and beyond there. But this book, which I've got to tell the listeners is an eloquent, passionate polemic against structural racism, has clearly been bubbling inside you for a long time. That's right. How did This Is Why I Resist come about? So this is why I resist is, like you said, it's something I've been wanting to write about, but the perfect timing came last year, Mm -hmm. not just because of what was going on. It just seemed as though all of the elements worked together. And that was just when it was, it was perfect to be able to gather 
all of these things that I didn't even realize was inside and talk about them. And for me, I think one of the triggers, if I'm perfectly honest, is was the hard conversations, the ongoing conversations, and the fact that we keep having to repeat ourselves. I mean, just, I mean, we always say it's exhausting, but it is beyond exhausting now. It, it almost it feels as though, even though you're saying the same thing that somebody 10 years ago said, somebody 100 years ago said, generationally, our society has not progressed, not with my white siblings, not with majority of my white siblings. And I'm like, why is that? Right, and what I try to do in this book is, is basically highlight the fact that I know it's a constant battle to talk about race, racism, and race inclusion. But this is why it's a constant battle. This is why talking about these issues cause pain to some people. Why some people reject the notion of white supremacy, white privilege, and systemic racism because it's. <laughs> It's actually affecting their way of life. And because their way of life is predicated on denying an equal life and liberty to black people and ethnic minorities, it's shaking them. It's shaking the, the very foundation of who they are. They're not ready to give up whatever power that they get from this, from a systemically racist society. Let's talk about the title, This Is Why I Resist because the book is very much about how we all need to resist. So the direct opposite of resistance is cooperation, but it obviously goes much, much deeper than that. Silence is compliance. We hear that all the time and it's correct. And after the surge of support that happened in the summer of 2020 last year, do you think too many people have gone back to sitting on their hands? Heck yes. They did not even let the ink dry before they got there. <laughs> you know, as soon as... It was not trending. All those, you know, black squares started coming off. The performative allyship uh -huh. is just as dangerous as far as I'm concerned. If you as the white ally say, you know, if you put out there in the public that or you support Black Lives Matter or, you you know, you support issues that pertain to eradicating racial and social injustice, but your actions say difference then you are just as dangerous as those who actively seek to oppress black people. Mm -hmm. You see, Black Lives Matter to me is a movement. The movement is the ethos that led to the abolition of slavery. The movement of Black Lives Matter is the ethos that pushed against the colonization of African nations and ended that. The ethos of Black Lives Matter is what ended apartheid in South Africa. The ethos of Black Lives Matter is what, you know, triggered and motivated the civil rights movement in America and here in the United Kingdom. That is what Black Lives Matter is about. Mm -hmm. That we matter. All lives cannot matter if Black lives don't matter. Simple. Take that to the bank and cash it. But people need to understand that when it comes to racial injustice, social injustice, this is not a hotel that you can check in and check out of, okay? Because we are in it 365 days, 24-7, mm -hmm. period. So you can't go, oh, my God, this is so much work by day seven and go, I just need to go to the spa. Spa who? If you're going to that spa, don't come back because you are, you're part of the problem, not the solution. And let's not, I mean, let's not get this wrong because I talk about this in the book, that we have had white siblings. History has shown us that we've had white siblings who have fought mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. the good fight to end racial and social injustice. Some of them have even lost their lives. But the reality is that they were the lone voices. So because they were the lone voices, there were not enough of their voices to make the kind of change that they were, you know, the change that we all were seeking, which is why the change or the, 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 the is incremental. That's what, that is what I'm trying to say. If you think about it, things like the equalities law only came about in the 60s. I know. 60s, that was yesterday. Mm-hmm. 60s was yesterday. It's not 100 years ago. So look at how change is coming incrementally. And the reason for that is because of systemic racism. We need to keep fighting it. I know this is a, a huge question, and obviously you've written a book about it, but what does it mean and what does it take to dismantle structural racism? I would say it takes a whole lot of you to do that. And I, I'm going to look at this from you know um, two perspectives. So as somebody who is actively pushing for anti-racism and to eradicate it, there's a lot that it takes to engage in constant battles, verbal battles, should I say, yeah. about ending racism. And then having to come up against those structural systems, you're a lone voice because those who run the structural systems or benefit from the structural systems want to keep the power. So it's something that is going to take a whole lot of energy, a whole lot of continual learning, a whole lot of... Um, you know, being able to work collectively, but at the same time, being able to stand on your own individually, because you see, if nobody else is around you, you should still be able to stand up and say, hell no, to this racist thing as a black person or ethnic minority. Then, I mean, if you look at it from, say, those who are white allies, who see this thing as problematic, who see the evil of systemic racism, some of them are rejected by their own people as not, you know, no one. So it, it's painful on both sides for all those who want to end and eradicate racial and social injustice. It is so because we're fighting a powerful structure, a powerful yeah. structure that is not just from the top of government, but all the way down to grassroots, right? When we fight racism, you're fighting it on all fronts. It takes a whole lot, especially when you deal with abuse online and offline. I mean, I've had to, just a few days ago, I had to um, report a threat to my person that somebody made online. This guy retweeted my my tweet saying he would like to kick me in the face. I'm like, okay, you just picked the wrong black person to mess with. (laughs) Yeah, right. All right. I mean, I get a lot of racist abuse, but he, I went, you can disagree with what I have to say, but you have absolutely no right to talk about hitting me kicking me in the face, nothing of sorts. So I reported him to the police. And it's important that we as anti-racist activists understand that we have the right, we have the right to speak out against physical, verbal intimidation and threats, and that we must do so. Has anything been done about it? Yeah, the police have taken the deal, uh, the, the, the details, and they are investigating it. Good. There was one that I, I, I reported earlier. They looked into it. They called me. All of this, something going on on the, I don't know if you've heard of the 4chan platform. Yes. Yes. Sad and face. somebody, you know, brought my name in there saying that, oh, I am um, I'm an N person who who is causing, you know, division and just gaining traction 
that how dare she who is she oh she claims she has a doctorate degree well can somebody find out if she really has a doctor can you imagine can you believe that it's so it's it, it's so endless just the bullshit the whataboutery the questioning it is knackering and i think when we're talking about being anti-racist and anti-racist activism it, there's a big difference between something feeling right, which it should absolutely feel, and something feeling comfortable. And I think if you're comfortable, yeah. you're not doing it right. Preach, my sister. That's it right there. There is nothing comfortable about addressing the issues of race, racism and race inclusion. Shola, I stand in awe of the fact that you didn't just write, this is bullshit a hundred million times for your book, <laughs> right? <laughs> This is Why I Resist is published on Thursday the 21st of January by Headline and is available in all good bookshops. Where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? Oh, please do follow me on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on... Oh, now I'm on TikTok. Finally figured out what to do with it. Hang Um, on, you're a woman in your 40s. What are you doing on TikTok? I know, I know. (laughs) But I actually, now I use, um, I do learn on TikTok. So I use it to talk about many of these issues in 60 seconds. So, you know, hopefully it's an opportunity to educate and to to engage or to drive that conversation Mm -hmm. that we need to drive in order to be able to, um, you know, get change. And of course, you can find out more about me on my website, which is drshola.com. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you for chatting to me and best of luck with the book. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we smash our racket up in disgust and the umpire tells us not to be a prick as we discuss all things women's sport. That reference will become clear later on. And the big news this week, Phil Neville is no longer the England manager. So it was announced last year that he was going to leave when his contract ended in July. So we were expecting this and maybe even looking forward to it a little bit. However, that would have been after the scheduled European Cup this summer, which has now been pushed back to next year. So that would all have been well, depending on your perspective on Phil Neville as an England manager. But the Olympics have, of course, been moved back also from last year to this year. So what that actually would have meant was that his contract would have been up just before the game started, which clearly wouldn't have been ideal. The Olympics are currently due to take place starting on July the 23rd. Whether or not they will still go ahead, who knows? It's all become fiendishly complicated and perhaps lessons will be learnt from the current Australian Open debacle by then. More on that in a minute. Serena Vigman takes over as the new permanent head coach for the England team in August after the Olympics and the FA has said that it will shortly confirm an interim head coach. So that means that whoever takes over now will have a bit of time to get to grips with the squad ahead of the games and oversee that whole process covid has obviously ruined everything in terms of football contracts and delays to tournaments which obviously has an impact but i have to say it strikes me that this isn't an ideal situation either six months isn't a huge amount of time and then what they just go at the end of it regardless of how well they do anyway we look forward to the arrival of Vigman for the uninitiated she's the current head coach of the Netherlands national football team spoiler alert they've done quite well under Vigman winning the European Cup in 2017 and coming second in the 2019 World Cup Obviously, we very much hope that she can have similar success here. But in the meantime, I have to say I'm intrigued to find out who the interim coach will be. 
Meanwhile, Neville is off to the US, where he will be the head coach at David Beckham's MLS franchise into Miami. Under Neville, the Lionesses won the 2019 She Believes Cup, but lost the title in 2020 after they were beat by Spain for a seventh loss in 11 games. I mean, it's pointless having a go at Phil Neville because, you know, he's gone. But the idea that a woman would springboard into another role with a record as bad as that is just laughable, but whatever by phil the lionesses have not played since then thanks to covid which is nuts when you think about the major tournament supposedly coming up in the next two years it's hard to be critical of matches being cancelled in the current climate if you look at the number of athletes across men's and women's sport at the moment who are getting covid and then the number of postponed matches tournaments etc you could argue that really no one should be playing football at the moment But I think if they are, then it has to be equal. I've spoken before about how the last WSL season was written off very quickly while huge amounts of work went into ensuring the top men's leagues were able to finish. Again here, the National England men's team played matches in September, October and November last year, while the women's matches were all postponed. So while we're on the subject of whether or not professional sports should be taking place during the current and tediously ongoing pandemic, let's have a look at what's going on in Australia ahead of the first Grand Slam of the year. Well, guys, with 72 of the tennis players who travelled there for the tournament currently in quarantine after COVID cases were discovered on their flights, I think we can probably conclude it's going about as well as you'd imagine for a massive international tournament an entire day away from most of its competitors during a highly contagious global pandemic. 25 players from one flight ended up going into quarantine after a person who tested negative before the flight and this is pretty scary actually then tested positive after the flight for those players in quarantine they have been ordered to stay in their hotel rooms for 14 days so if you were one of the players who arrived on sunday you'll be allowed out on january the 30th listener that is a week before the tournament starts so fair play i can understand why you'd feel a bit aggrieved if you were one of those players because well your tournament is fucked isn't it so what are you going to do about it well if you're bernard tomich's girlfriend vanessa sierra you're going to get yourself on the gram and complain about having to wash your own hair vanessa fuck off if you know Novak Djokovic, who himself contracted COVID after ploughing ahead with his Adria tour last year, despite heavy criticism for doing so, you're going to suggest that the rules be eased for tennis players. Novak, this is why people don't like you as much as they like Roger Federer. Sure, you're going to fly into a country which actually currently has its shit together COVID-wise and just take your germs and ride roughshod over the infection-free people of Melbourne. You absolute spoilt twat of a man. Anyway, I'll leave it there as we'll hopefully be talking about the tournament in more detail in a couple of weeks' time. But interested in your thoughts on this, should tournaments like this be going ahead at all at the moment? Give me a shout. I'm on Twitter at InspiraGen and until next time. Welcome to Rated or Dated. We're all about the kids again. This week, Mickey, what did you pick? Hannah, I don't understand why you're insisting on referring to rated or dated when it's quite clearly the Harry Dean Stanton section. <laughs> oh, I just find his crumpled face really reassuring. <laughs> so, yeah, this week we watched 1986's Brat Pack cult classic, and more on what that means in a bit, Pretty in Pink, a tale of star-crossed lovers chasing happiness across the class divide, written by King of Teen Movies' John Hughes, who is also co-executive producer, and directed by Howard Deutsch. It got its first ever screening at Man's Chinese Theatre on January the 29th, 1986, before an official release on February the 28th, making it 35 years old. Let's examine those cult classic credentials. 
Unlike most films that grabbed that moniker, Pretty in Pink was a pretty big success, coming in at number 22 in 1986's top grossing films. It's not underground, subversive, gory, violent or sexy, unless the 80s is what gives you a wide on. So yeah, I'm not entirely sure why this is thought of as a cult classic. One blogger I read muses it's down to its emotional vulnerability. I don't, I don't really want to spot my rated or dated load too soon, but that's a no from me. It contains just two official Brat Pack members, Molly Ringwald as Andy and Andrew McCarthy as Blaine. In my head, James Spader was also in the Brat Pack, but he wasn't. He is, however, in this film, as is John Cryer as Ducky, although he was third choice after Brat Packer Anthony Michael Hall or Robert Downey Jr. It also stars a post-Ghostbusters Annie Potts, channeling Cindy Lauper as Iona, owner of Trax, the record shop where Andy works. She's Andy's gobby, independent, take-no-prisoners mentor in a series of incredible hairdos. Until she meets a man, whereupon she changes her entire look to fit in with him, because that, my friends, is true love. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Fun fact, the film is named after the Psychedelic Furs' excellent title song, which was originally released in 1981. Before I chat plot, have either of you seen it before? No. Yes, I saw it when I was age appropriate for seeing it. So I would say, what, 15, 16, Mm -hmm. something like that. And I was ambivalent to it, although my attitude has changed, I have to say. (laughs) No guesses, please. Everyone keep your powder dry. Uh, I thought I'd seen it before, but I think I've only seen bits of it before rather than sitting down and watching it in its entirety. So when you do that, what happens? In short, it is the story of Andy, a poor, red-headed sourpuss who falls in love with Blaine, a member of the Bullingdon Club with no discernible personality, thus breaking the heart of Ducky, her best friend slash actual stalker. But let's move from the shallows to delve a little deeper into the shallows. So Andy's an outlier at her posh white school. Why? Because she may be a brain box, but she's poor and she makes her own clothes, the big weirdo. Her mum sodded off three years ago, leaving her dad Jack heartbroken and feckless, mournfully gazing at the same black and white photo of his ex-wife that resides in every room of the house. Following the world's worst first date, Andy and Blaine inevitably fall head over heels for each other. And they would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for those pesky rich kids. Because here comes James Spader, spadering like an absolute spader, tossing his feather cut, calling Andy trash and reminding Blaine that his parents aren't going to stand for the crown prince of McDonough Electric, taking a working class lass to the prom, even if she is a whiz at making wearable bedding. (laughs) Ducky gets in a strop that Andy's not dating him and renounces their friendship. Blaine lies about having already asked someone else to the prom and Andy decides to stag it to show the rich kids they can't break her. But of course, Ducky's there to walk her in, and Blaine's there also on his tod. And well, predictable romance gonna predictable romance, people. But what of our clown prince, Ducky? Will he be left forever lonely in a cell-like bedroom, listening to the Smiths and tugging on his wingtips? Nah, there's a cute blonde at the prom who likes his new suit and fancies a dance. Phew, he has someone else to stalk in the future. What a relief. Andy getting it together with Blaine wasn't the original ending, though. It's worth pointing that out. That saw her give in to Ducky's relentless creepy campaign, but the test audience booed it. And so the bridge between the classes was built and our two bits of two before exchanged saliva in the moonlight. Andy, love, if both your options are bad, don't get together with either of them. Note to younger self. And indeed the people behind the Mary Wollstonecraft statue. So, Hannah, Jen, what did you think of Harry Dean Stanton's performance? 
Right. Well, I would say, like I say, uh, there was a point at which I was ambivalent to this film, but having watched it again, I full on fucking hate it. <laughs> Absolutely hate it. It's called Pretty in Pink entirely so it can use that song um, because there doesn't seem to be any other... She wears a lot of pink. Any other connection to it, apart from that she wears pink. But you remember when you said that, that um, Dangerous Minds used um, Coolio three times? This uses Pretty in Pink three times. And I've decided that the reason it's called Pretty in Pink is because the other title that fits it, which is Two Wet Blankets Sitting on a Blanket, <laughs> probably wasn't as catchy. Yeah, I absolutely hated it, but in most in particular, I absolutely hated Andy, which, given that she's the one I'm supposed to identify with, given that she is a working-class girl surrounded by middle-class people, I think is an even greater failing of this film. What did you not yeah. like about her, can I ask? Well, I I think she's actually grossly unpleasant. I mean, aside from the fact she's quite bland, why there's supposed to be two men fighting over her, I don't get. I find her to be bland in personality. I mean, she looks like an explosion at a tea shop of a National Trust property. I mean, she just <laughs> looks ridiculous. She oozes all the sex appeal of Michelle Fowler. Um, oh, but she's not very nice. And I think she's actually particularly unkind to both her dad and to Ducky, but then ask them for sympathy. For example, I mean, Ducky, for whatever you say about him stalking her, she keeps him round, she likes the attention, she enjoys it, and then she's really mean to him and says basically get over it when he's clearly been carrying a candle for her. She says to her dad, you need to get over mum leaving. But then she has a, what, 25-minute relationship and then expects everyone to give her sympathy because she can't get over it. Yeah, I absolutely hated her. She's given what you would imagine like to be profound things to say. Like she says, if we hate the rich people like they hate us, then we're just the same as them. And I'd actually like to apply um, some logic to that and say that that is totally bullshit because rich people can choose to be poor, but poor people can't choose to be rich. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure her unpopularity at school is less about her class background, which is what we're meant to believe, and more about her being vapid. And she's really superior as well. She acts really superior, although we're never really given any indication as to why. And yeah, like Hannah said, I have no idea why these three men are yeah, absolutely fascinated yeah. with her. Well, no, no well, James Spader. Romantically, yeah. yeah, James Spader as Steph yeah. is also like really wants to, well, he wants to get in her pants and nothing else. But it's just like, I don't, we're never told or shown why they should be that fussed about her. Perhaps it's the Princess Diana hair that they like. I mean, she's bonny, but like. I don't, I don't even think she I is. I think she was supposed to be, wasn't she? And she has no chemistry. They have literally no chemistry. He looks like he's wearing a wig for most of it. His hair is so bad. He actually is wearing a wig right at the end, Andrew McCarthy, because they had to film a new ending because the test audience booed it. So, yeah, there's loads Uh, of the final section that he's wearing this terrible wig. But everything's, like, amped up to, like, 11 in this, and it's bad. Like, Annie Potts is so over the top. James Spader is so over the top. Everything is so ludicrously over the top it's got Andrew fucking Dice Clay in it at one point which is really just aggravating because he's a terrible terrible comedian what's he doing in a comedy film is he the bouncer he's the bouncer yeah sorry Jen I've been talking for ages you you feel free to chip in 
I didn't like it. I thought it was boring. I thought none of the characters were very likable. Um, I don't really like any of those Brat Pack films, to be fair. It's not really my thing. And, uh, yeah, that's about it, really. It was all just a bit, yeah, it's just all a bit silly, wasn't it? There's not really a lot to like about it, basically. There was something I wanted to talk about where I thought it raises quite an interesting point that wasn't relevant in the UK then, but is now. And that is about going to the prom and how divisive that can be. Because they've become a thing over here now and they really do demand a lot of cash that Mm. poorer families just don't have. And I think it goes hand in hand with, I've always been a big fan of school uniforms because they're much more of a leveller. You'll still get kids who have got more money taking the piss out of like where your fucking jumpers from or particularly Mm. shoes. That's what I got a lot of shit for. But the prom must be really hard for poorer families. Yeah, agreed. I was going to say about um, non-uniform day was always a bit of a like feeding frenzy. I think as well though, but all of the rich people, and boy do I dislike with rich people with a passion, all such cliches, in particular the women, the women are to a woman, absolute fucking bitches. And the only woman that's actually like nice in this, apart from Iona, but like I say, I'm pretty annoyed by how they calamity Jane her at the end. Yeah. But the only one that's nice is the bland one, the one that never argues, the doormat, the quiet one, the one without much of a personality. And I don't know what this film says about women, that they're like that. All of the rich people are dicks. I mean, I have to say, I mean, obviously, James Spader, I have nothing but contempt for a character that loads up a bifter and then walks away without the smoke in it. (laughs) He does have a great line where he says, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, and he's like, do you think it is all about the money? If it was all about being rich, do you think I'd treat my parents' house the way I do? I've actually written that down. I've actually written that down. It's not the line that they think it is. If you thought I cared about money, do you think I wouldn't care about money? It's, it's weird. I have a question. Okay. And that's, I wonder if there's something culturally appropriation-y about the character of Ducky. Because he seems to me to be Eddie murphy light. Or Eddie Murphy White might be closer to it. It hadn't occurred to me. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, so John Cryer wasn't initially earmarked for the role. And actually, he did a lot of improvisation. So I I don't think it would be on purpose, is what I would say from the reading round I've done. He's so annoying, isn't he? I read that article that Molly Ringwald wrote a few years ago about Me Too and um, looking at the John Hughes films from a kind of modern perspective. And in the article, it said that Ducky was in fact gay. Whereas John Cryer says no. And he actually said that Molly Ringwald's entitled to her opinion, but he never saw Ducky like that because he was quite an effeminate man who is now married And so why isn't it allowed for a heterosexual guy to just want to play with clothes and be like a little bit loud and lip sync and and enjoy dancing and all of those things? It is sort of putting people in those gender boxes. Yeah, I was confused by it because for someone who is apparently not into women sexually, his character seemed to be very much into women. (laughs) He actually does get the only line that makes me laugh in this, which is when he says, um, when he's telling Annie Potts' character about about how he rides his bike round, and then he says to her, would you like me to add you to my round? (laughs) Which which is actually funny, but that's the only thing that made me laugh in this. So I don't really know what it is. It doesn't work as a romance. It doesn't work as a comedy. I don't really know what it's trying to say. certainly doesn't work as social commentary. 
No, and is that why it was deemed a cult classic, or is it just the John Hughesness of it that has deemed it a cult classic? Because I don't understand what, like, say, obviously we're of an age that we, maybe not you, Jen, but we're of an age where we could have watched it when it came out, or just after it came out, and it would <laughs> in, potentially relate to us. But I can't see kids today rediscovering that or discovering it through their parents and being like, yeah, this is amazing. No. Another thing I thought was interesting was she's supposed to be like a bit dweeby or whatever, like she's not one of the cool kids because basically from because she's poor, right, or she's not rich, so she doesn't fit in or whatever. But I kind of thought like, you know, she did look bizarre um, by modern standards, to be <laughs> fair. But I was kind of like, she probably would have been considered quite cool in some circles. You're right. It does create the idea that there is only one way to be cool in this. For example, I would imagine that when I went to school, that Ducky would have been considered relatively cool because he was a kid who didn't give a fuck about what other people thought about him. And therefore there is a coolness to that. And her making her own clothes and working in a record store and all of that kind of stuff would, by most people's standards, generally be considered sort of a bit cool. At the risk of upsetting Hannah, I'm going to make a Freaks and Geeks comparison. But obviously Freaks and Geeks did it so much better. But it is almost like the, the Freaks... We look at them now and see them as they're the cool characters, but within the school, they're not seen as cool at all. So maybe that's the sort of same idea in Pretty in Pink. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it's funny you should bring up Freaks and Geeks because we have to bring it up every 30 seconds. Obviously, it's the law. But also, when Iona has that ridiculous punk hair, it reminded me of when Franco does that ridiculous punk <laughs> hair to go to that party. So, I mean, every, which is supposed to be, he looks stupid. But they played it like that's just how she dresses. She's old enough, though, I think. Annie Potts' character is supposed to be a lot older. In her like, late 20s, early 30s, because she talks about going to prom 15 years ago, that she could have been a bona fide punk, I suppose, in the mm. 80s. Like, seriously, can we talk about that dress? Because she <laughs> takes two dresses. She takes one dress that's actually quite nice and one dress that's a bit iffy and makes something out of them that's fucking horrible. Yeah. I would be livid if I gave someone my prom dress. Not that I would have one, but they came back with something when this is what I turned it into. And it was that. I also thought because we are it's suggested that her dad has spent quite a lot of money on the dress that he bought her money that he possibly can't really afford to give her. And she uses like a tiny, tiny bit of it. And I just thought, well, that's a fucking waste, isn't it? Because it's funny at the start, he says, how much did that outfit cost? And she said, oh, the shoes cost this, but the clothes I made. And I thought, well, that still costs something. It costs a lot, actually. It costs a lot. I recently bought my mum some fabric for Christmas to uh, make my child some clothes with. She likes doing it. She asked for it, all right? Fabric's fucking expensive. It's like when you make a, you know, when you do like a homemade cheesecake or something. And then you're like, actually, that cost me 20 pounds. Yeah, <laughs> but also, even if you went to a uh, like a thrift store, as they call them there, and bought clothes and cut them up and made other clothes with them, those clothes aren't free. Yeah, you don't go in and pay with beans and buttons. And the one thing that I would tell you when you come, I come from a family where people don't have very much money, if, if they've got something nice, right, and people tell it, you, their gut reaction is to go, pound fifty in Oxfam. <laughs> Nobody says it costs nothing. So, I mean, I'm going to ask the question, even though I think I already know the answer. Uh, Rated or dated? Yeah, dated. Yes, very much so. Dated. Agreed. That's it, Pretty in Pink. We think you're shit. (laughs) We're shitty in pink. 
That's great. it. <laughs> yeah, if the psychedelic furs could re-record with those lyrics, please. Very it was nice. a great song. I enjoyed that. That was the best part about it, for sure. Yeah, especially the fact we got it three times. <laughs> Perhaps that's a sign, isn't it? Anything that uses its theme tune three times is bad. It's struggling. Well, Hannah, that probably leads us on quite neatly to next week's pick. Um, so, it's slightly um, unorthodox, my pick is a sequel, but... As we discussed between us, we felt it was a sequel of a well-known enough franchise to get away with it because all of the films are basically the same. Oh, I don't agree with that, but no. but yes, in, we can discuss well, that no, next well, week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of like what actually happens. Oh, well, there's already a punch-up. My pick for next week is supposedly the worst of the franchise. Let's see. Rocky Five. Standard issue for all women.